I'm running. Has it been running for a little bit? It's running now. Well, it's running now. All right. Okay, so page 10 point B. The gospel of the kingdom resurrection was thus uh, understood as Israelocentric. The Messiah will return to Jerusalem, establish his throne in the temple, restore the Davidic kingdom to Israel, bless all the nations of the earth by cleansing and rewarding the righteous while judging and destroying the wicked. So there's a little just summary statement, which we've worked through all those in the theology class and through this one uh, indirectly. So Isaiah 59, from the west, men will fear the name of the Lord. From the rising of the sun, they'll revere his glory. He will come like a pent-up flood. In context, to him looking at all the earth and seeing that there's no justice and righteousness, therefore his own arm, the Messiah, works salvation for him. For he'll come like a pent-up flood that the breath of the Lord drives along. The Redeemer will come to Zion to those in Jacob who repent of their sins when he makes covenant with them and puts his spirit in them and in their mouths. And then there's no shift in idea or understanding into chapter 60 because the Redeemer comes to Zion. Therefore, arise and shine for your light has come. The glory of the Lord rises upon you, Zion. Nations will come to your light, the restored and and regenerated Jerusalem, the kings to the brightness of your dawn. Your gates will always stand open. They'll never be shut day or night so that men may bring you the wealth of the nations. Their kings led in triumphal procession. The The sun will no more be your light by day, nor the brightness of the moon shine on you. The Lord will be your everlasting light. Your God will be your glory. Then, all, then will all your people be righteous. They'll possess the land forever. The least of you will become a thousand, the, strong, the smallest a mighty nation. I am the Lord. In its time, I'll do this swiftly. And, which is, and then the next verse is, Behold the servant of the Lord who is anointed to do all of this in Isaiah 61. And so this gives context for revelation and understanding revelation. And like I always say this, the, the, if you start with Genesis and then build your foundation off of Genesis as a restored creation and then build your covenants as a restored creation and then build your prophets as a restored, as fulfilling the covenants a restored pr- creation and then you build your commentary on the covenants, on the prophets, on the restored creation and then you build your your symbolic commentary, your parables and your analogies on the commentary, on the on the prophets, covenants, restored creation. And so in that order, how do you interpret Revelation 21 in light of the prophets, in light of the covenants, in light of the restored creation, but usually gets re- interpreted the other way around, where it starts with Plato, and then the parables, and then the commentary, and then reinterpreting the prophets as the spiritualized heavenly destiny, then the covenants as the spiritualized promised land, and the spiritualized myth of restored creation, etc. And so I just press that Revelation, the whole book of Revelation in general, but specifically Revelation 21 and 22, need to be interpreted in light of how they would see Isaiah 54 and Isaiah uh, uh, Isaiah 60 as the two primarily, and then Isaiah 65, 66. And those three passages really... I mean, all of the language from the wiping the tears from everybody's eye and the walls, the new Jerusalem, the Jerusalem as a bride, Isaiah 54 of her husband, rebuilt and adorned, the kings of the earth coming in, 
you know, the new heavens and new earth, the new, the creating of a new Jerusalem, all of that is just sucked right out of those three chapters. And so, um, which are all clearly in their minds, uh, restored Jerusalem on the earth and restored uh, creation on earth. Revelation 21, he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high, which is exactly, you know, Ezekiel 43, same language, showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God. Its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, 12 angels around the gates. So you get the the uh, talk of that like we read out of Isaiah 54 on the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel and so it's not symbolic it's he's the God of Israel the God of Jacob uh, the God of Zion in the age to come I did not see a temple and the Greek word is naos and so naos in 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 contrast to Hieron Hieron refers to the temple complex as a whole and so I put in the footnote there all the references to the temple. When they say the temple, they're referring to the temple complex as a whole. Naos, I just copied and pasted the Strong's definition down there, used of the temple at Jerusalem, not only of the sacred edifice, the sanctuary itself consisting of the holy place, used only, but used only, emphasize that, but used only of the sacred edifice, the sanctuary consisting of the holy place and the holy of holies. In classical Greek, it's used of the sanctuary or the cell of the temple where the image of gold was placed, which is distinguished from the whole enclosure. And so on the bottom of the next page, I put all the references to where naos is used. And when you read those passages, when Paul makes references to you are the temple of the Lord, referring to the inner sanctuary, comparing the glory of God in the inner sanctuary to the glory of God in, in you with the Spirit as a deposit, it just makes a whole lot more sense in context rather than to you being like a superseded, the temple as a type and your body is superseded, the temple structure and there's no longer any need of temple and there won't be a temple in the age to come, blah, 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 blah. And so it matters that he uses the word naos. I didn't see an inner sanctuary. Of course there's the whole the temple complex because it's just so clear throughout all the prophets. There's a temple complex. There's not an inner sanctuary because the Lord Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Because Jeremiah 3, no longer will they say the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord in the inner sanctuary. But Jerusalem will be called the throne of the Lord. Because God and the Lamb will be in its midst, and they will be the throne of the Lord, and the nations will gather to it. They'll no longer go their own way. The city does not need the light, or uh, does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. Circle the word need. It doesn't need it. It doesn't mean it's not there. It's a new heavens and new earth. And so there's going to be a restored sun in the age to come. And the Messiah will endure as long as the restored sun forever and ever and ever. But Jerusalem, because of the glory emanating from it, Jerusalem won't need the light of the sun. But the rest of the earth will have uh, the sun. And the lamp, the nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. There. There will be no night. There will be night everywhere else, but no night in, in uh, the restored uh, uh, Jerusalem. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful. 
only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So, uh, page 11, Jesus assumes this understanding. He refers to himself as king of, of, as king of Israel and, the kings of, and king of the Jews. And so clearly in the age to come, it's uh, just assumed. Um, point three, before and after the ascension, the apostles reflect the Israelocentric posture of expectation, waiting for the return of Jesus to the temple to restore the kingdom to Israel. And so Luke 24, like we've talked about this a little bit, where Jesus was taken up and uh, before them, it's promised to them that he'll return in just the same way in glory on the clouds. And so where do they go continually? in waiting for him to return in glory on the clouds, continually meeting in the temple, uh, uh, praising the Lord. And then Acts 1 is kind of an expanded version of the end of Luke 24. They worshipped him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy. They stayed continually at the temple praising God. So Acts 1 through 2 all happens in a 10-day period of time. The first two chapters, first two chapters of Acts. So I'm going to put Acts one and then the end of Acts two. But it's it's both Acts one and two are in the last verse of Luke 24 and in uh, verse 53. So he appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. They and and in that context they ask him, Are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel and do the whole bit? And then they. Acts 2, after the day of Pentecost and the sermon of, of uh, Peter, it says, Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God, enjoying the favor of all the people. And so they continued to meet continually. And we'll, get, we'll, uh, we'll look at that more in, in uh, the second part. So for before the baptism of the Gentiles in the Holy Spirit, the apostles universally assumed the resurrection and kingdom to be reserved only for the Jews and those Gentiles who were proselytes. And this really can't be emphasized enough because it really does. You get inside the mind of the apostles and therefore inside the mind of the scriptures that they were reading. Because it's just not anywhere even in their paradigm that the Gentiles would be blessed in the resurrection by any other means than they become proselytes and adhere to the law of Moses and be, gen- and be circumcised and become Jews. I mean, that's the only option in their mind. And so, uh, it, it, and so when that changes, again, the glory that they're going to inherit and receive doesn't change. But the understanding of how they will receive that glory uh, uh, does. So, because they, I mean, they assume that in the age to come, all these Gentiles over the years that have become proselytes and they have become Jews and been circumcised, these are the Gentiles that will be blessed in the resurrection that will bring their glory into the coming kingdom. And all the wicked Gentiles will be thrown into the lake of fire and all the wicked Jews likewise. So Acts 2, now they're staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. Peter stands up, raises his voice, fellow Jews, all of you live in Jerusalem. I explain to you, explain to you men of Israel, let, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was, Nazareth was accredited, was a man accredited by God to you by miracle signs and wonders. He was the Messiah, etc. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus both Lord and Messiah. 
Acts 3, when Peter goes in the, the, heals the guy, he goes in the temple, he says, Men of Israel, when there's the big commotion, why do you wonder at this? The God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus. Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out. The times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send the Christ appointed for you. And then Acts 4, rulers and elders of the people know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He's the, he's the stone the builders rejected that's become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given to men by which who? We must be saved. And then Acts 5 when they're called in to the Sanhedrin and put on the spot, Peter says, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead, whom you had killed by hanging, on a, hanging him on a tree. God exalt, exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, That which are, again, names uh, tacked on to uh, Yahweh in the Old Testament, that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to who? To Israel. It's the only option. If the Gentiles are going to be blessed in the resurrection, they're going to become part of Israel. Point five, the inclusion of Gentiles in the resurrection without Jewish conversion was startling and initially confusing. However, it was gradually understood that this was the means by which the Gentiles would be blessed by Abraham and his seed in the resurrection. The Gentiles would be justified through faith in the cross and being resurrected along with the descendants of Abraham. So you know the message God sent to the people of Israel when, P- when Peter is in the house of Cornelius talking to him and his family. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, telling the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. Peter wasn't astonished because he had just had the vision that God called all of the unclean animals who were repentant, he calls them clean. And so he has the vision that God is going to do something with the Gentiles here after the, after the uh, or I don't know if he, I mean, probably who knows what's going on inside of his mind, but clearly by chapter 11 when he's giving explanation, he's putting it together what happened with Cornelius and his vision. So Acts 11, the apostles and brothers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him, saying, you ate in the home with unbelievers, with Gentiles. Um, And then they start having discussions on it, and Peter, you know, gets up and says, this is what happened, the Holy Spirit was poured out on them. So if God gave them the same gift as he gave to us, who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is I to think I could oppose God? When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, So then God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. And so the whole discussion is, like, how can the Gentiles be saved in the resurrection without circumcision and Mosaic adherence to, uh, adherence to the Mosaic law? And it's like this, the confusion and struggle is, my goodness, they've received the deposit. They're going to be raised, even the Gentiles, repentance unto life without becoming Jews. 
Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to the Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. And so then you bring the Antioch thing into the equation, and Paul and Barnabas go down to Antioch and counsel these Greeks in chapter 11, like we talked about. So Galatians 3 Know then this, that that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scriptures foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preach the gospel before him. And you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of the faith of the of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And then Romans three. The point is, is that Roman Galatians three and Romans three and four, which are the two primary ones that are argued by covenantalists, that God doesn't make distinction between ethnicities anymore, and He won't make distinction in the age to come. And so, but both of these passages, the point is, no, He still does make distinction. He's just clarifying that this is how the Gentiles will be blessed. There'll still be a distinction between Gentile and Jew in the age to come, but they'll be commonly blessed in the resurrection, and God has done this now. They don't have to become Jewish to receive the Holy Spirit, guaranteeing that they'll be raised uh, from the dead in glory in the age to come. So the point is, is that what Paul is arguing against isn't even in the conversation of what is talked about in the modern church. What Paul is arguing against is the commonly held notion that the resurrection is only for the Jews. And therefore, if Gentiles are going to be included in that blessing, they have to become Jews. Six, this led to an immediate confusion concerning how to disciple these newly converted Gentiles. The Council of Jerusalem reveals the perceived relationship between Gentile believers and Jewish believers. Everyone would be disciplined in the righteousness of the age to come, while the Gentiles would be spared discipline in the signs of the righteousness of the age to come. And so everybody, this is what Paul is doing in Romans 14, everybody is discipled in the light of the age to come and is discipled to live as in the daytime, But the Gentiles are spared from the specifics of the Mosaic Law. Obviously, not all of them do not murder, do not commit adultery, etc., etc. But in the specifics of the signs, the calendar, one day more important than the other, the dietary laws, one thing unclean, not unclean, and circumcision, the sign of the Messianic seed. So Acts 14, when you read it through that context that... What do we do with these believers who have received the guarantee of the resurrection? What do we do with them now? Do they become Jews? Do they become circumcised and and adhere to the Mosaic law? And so, because obviously they're going to be blessed in the resurrection. So Acts 14, on arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. They stayed there a long time with the disciples. Some men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Unless you're discipled by the law, you won't be raised from the dead when Jesus returned. And so you get the common understanding of of pre-Acts 10. You know, the common understanding was exactly the same understanding as before. That we're justified through faith and righteousness of heart, and the law has been given to us as a tutor to disciple us, to keep us on a narrow path unto the age to come. And so they're like, why would this be any different than it has before when the Gentiles come to faith in the day of the Lord? 
And so this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. I mean, this isn't like they're way out in left field. It's common sense at that time, okay? And ought to be common sense to us. This, uh, where does he say? Uh, the apostles and elders met to consider the question. When they had finished, James spoke up. Brothers, listen to me. Simon has described to us after Peter says, you know, he's, he's, uh, he showed his favor to the Gentiles by giving them the same spirit. James says, brothers, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God at first showed his concern by taking from the Gentiles a people for himself. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this. After this, I'll rebuild Israel. I'll restore the kingdom to Israel. It's his, David's fallen tent. The Messiah will sit on David's throne, Isaiah 9, etc. It's ruins I will rebuild. I'll restore it that the remnant of men may seek me and all the Gentiles who bear my name. Uh, it is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from uh, food polluted, uh, polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from meat of strangled animals, from blood. For, God, for Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times. It's read in, in the synagogues on every Sabbath. With them they sent the following letter, the apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers. Abstain from idols and blood, from sexual immorality. You'll do well to avoid these things. Farewell, Paul and Barnabas remain in Antioch, where many others taught and preached the word of the Lord. And so like Romans 14 is the kind of explained, expounded uh, unfolding of what they were doing in verse 35. Declaring the word of the Lord in the light of the age to come and, and discipling them primarily on, uh, on that. Okay, so page 14, the threefold Israelocentric missiology of the church. So the like with the diagram, you have worship, discipleship and evangelism, so also threefold uh in the New Testament, you get that emphasis that their worship was the hope of the fathers, that their discipleship was based on the discipleship of the mosaic law pointing to the the age to come and then the apostles teaching the evangelism was the good news of the king of israel coming so acts 2 they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching the fellowship discipleship the breaking of bread the worship and a prayer so 15 worship in light of the day of the lord the apostles lived out their hope in the return of jesus by continually meeting together in the temple courts because they held uh, to the scriptures and believed nothing beyond what was written in the law and prophets, faithfully holding to the Israelocentric hope of the age to come. Um, point two, they continually broke bread in their homes in expectation of the return of Jesus in the day of the Lord. This symbolic act was at the heart of their worship and messianic hope. So Luke 22, the whole point of communion is... He, he's eating the Passover with them. He says they'll find fulfillment in the kingdom of God to do this in remembrance of me, of the suffering before the glories to come. I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. 
until the kingdom of God comes. And then he says, I've conferred on you after they get in the argument about what the kingdom of God will be like and who will be the, be- who will be the greatest. He says, I have con- you have to function as servants. The greatest in the coming kingdom will be the servant of all. For I have conferred on you a kingdom and I've, ex- I've exemplified it by the cross that you should follow my example, like John 13. I confer on you a kingdom just as my Father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, sitting on twelve thrones, judging the tribes of Israel. And so 1 Corinthians 11, this is the common understanding, Jew and Gentile alike, that they serve a common Lord, and this is how it will be in the age to come, when Jesus will sit on a throne, the apostles will sit on Twelve thrones in the inner courts in my father's house of the temple are many rooms judging because, like we talked about, Luke 22 and John 14. Have I talked about that? Did I talk about that? Luke 22 and John 14. In my father's house are many rooms. And that's the same thing as Luke 22. Father's house is always the temple. Luke 2, John 2. I'm in my father's house, my father's house, you know, when he cleanses the temple, zeal for my father's house has consumed me. My father's house is the temple, which is the signpost of the father's house, the messianic temple in the age to come. So this is why he's so zealous for my father's house to be cleansed. And this is, you know, read Matthew 21 in light of Jesus coming in after the triumphal entry, coming into the temple cleansing it, rebuking the stewards of the temple, you know, and they say, who gave you authority? You know, who gave you authority to be the Messiah? We know the Messiah is going to come, establish himself in the temple. Who gave you the, the authority as the Messiah to, 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 you know, rebuke us? And because we're the kind of like the stewards of Gondor waiting for the king, what's his name, Aragon or whatever, Likewise, the Pharisees were designed to be stewards of the temple until the Messiah would come and take up residency. And they're like, who gave you authority to do this? And, and you know, Jesus says, I ask you a question. Was John's baptism from heaven or from men? So why didn't you go get baptized and repent of your wickedness? You know, he's not questioning, he's not questioning the temple or anything like that. And so John 14 his father, in my father's house, are many rooms, which is the, the rooms where the, the rulers in the temple, the stewards of the temple, lived. And so therefore, Jesus says, in the inner sanctuary, I'll set up my throne, and you who have been with me and stood by me in my trials will sit on thrones in the inner rooms and rule with me over Israel, over all the nations of the earth. Like in... Uh, in uh, and the places, what's John 14? I can't think of it exactly in my mind. He says, My father's house are many rooms. If we're not so, I would not have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. Um, and so the place is like Paul says in whatever, Acts 26, where he says, I preach the gospel to the Gentiles that they might receive a place among those who are sanctified. And the place is, the idea is a position. And so I'm going there to prepare a place, a position for you in the new temple, in the new Jerusalem with me reigning and your place like Ezekiel 43. Um, he says, uh, he says, 
he brought me to the east gate. I saw the glory of the God of Israel. Um, the glory of the Lord entered the temple through the gate facing east. The Spirit lifted me up, brought me into the inner court, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. While the man was standing beside me, I heard someone speaking to me from inside the temple. He said, Son of man, this is the place of my throne, the place for the soles of my feet. This is where I will live amongst the Israelites forever, the voice being that of the Lord. And so when you read Isaiah 40 through 47, it makes so much emphasis on all of the rooms and the many rooms all around the inner court of the temple. So that's all he's saying. Where was I? Um... Oh, so Luke 22. Uh, So that's the point of the communion is the remembrance of the suffering. This is my body broken for you. Eat of it until the, uh, the, the, this is the cup of my blood poured out for you until the kingdom of God comes. I will not drink of it again until the kingdom of God comes. And so do this the bread and the wine in remembrance of the suffering of the body before the glory of the kingdom of God to come. So uh, 1 Corinthians 11, uh, when you come together, is it not the Lord's it is not the Lord's supper that you eat. For whenever you eat of this bread, drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death, the suffering, until he comes with the glory. So it's at the center of uh, all worship. Likewise, discipleship, the the Gentiles weren't, discipled completely out of context of the Mosaic Scriptures, which is how all the Gentiles today are discipled. They're discipled in the New Testament, completely disconnected from the Old Testament. Completely. I mean, it's not even useful to anyone at all, almost. I mean, you you take a survey of believers, of Gentile believers on the earth, and how much they actually read and spend time in the Old Testament, particularly the law. It's like... Close to zero percent, seriously. And so, Second Timothy three, as you know, continue in what you've learned and become convicted of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture, referring to the law and the prophets. Is God breathed is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, so that so that the man of God may thir- be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so Paul obviously is not he he's clear talking to Timothy that this is in context to Jew- Gentile believers also. Um, and then page seventeen evangelism. As the gospel was seen to be Israelocentric, so also was its proclamation and the ministry of the church understood as Israelocentric. It's not just good missiological strategy to preach first to the Jews. It was right procedure in light of the gospel. Romans 1, 16, 17, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Like you just can't wrangle around that. The gospel, the cross unto the resurrection, is first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. He's not talking chronologically. He's talking uh, uh, as far as priority and obligation. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Romans 2, God will give to each person according to what he's done. 
to those who by perseverance who by persistence in doing good seek glory honor and immortality in the resurrection he will give eternal life there will be trouble and distress for every human being be, uh, who does evil first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, but glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good first for the Jew and then for the Gentile, in light of their responsibility and destiny in the age to come. So Jesus and the apostles preach the good news only to the Jews. Matthew 10, when he sends out the apostles, he sends them only to the lost sheep of Israel. Do not go to the Gentiles or any town amongst the Samaritans. And then Matthew 15 is probably the most offensive to the Gentile church. I mean, the most offensive. Jesus, a Canaanite woman comes from that vicinity, came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus did not answer a word. Totally blows her off. So his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away. She keeps crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she cried. He replied, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. Oh my goodness. Yes, Lord, she said, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And that is just so intense. Gentile dog lady. Gentile dog lady. And she's just like... Yes, but I know how you will function in the age to come and how you will treat the Gentiles. And I know this is how you are and I know who you are. And he's like, you really do have great faith. And uh, likewise, the apostles always went to Jewish synagogues first, even after God showed them he was making a people for himself from among the Gentiles. Man, that phrase, it's not right is not right in light of the age to come. To take what is promised to the children in the resurrection and the kingdom and give it to dogs who haven't become Jews and declared allegiance to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's not right. It's just the kindness of God to extend salvation to the Gentiles without us having to be circumcised. Likewise, the apostles always went to the Jewish synagogues first, even after God showed that he was making a people for himself among the Gentiles. So they didn't, once they made the decision with the Jerusalem council, and once it all happened with Acts, you know, 10 through 14, it wasn't like they just, oh, you know, God's done with the Jews, the children of Abraham, it's all the same now, we'll just go to, no, it, every single time, it's to the Jew first and then the Gentile. The apostles refer to this Jewish priority in evangelism as necessary and a responsibility, revealing the covenantal obligation to the Jews in light of their destiny and responsibility in the age to come. Acts 13, And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. And Acts 13 is in context when he goes in the synagogue and he's preaching to the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles, the converts to uh, Judaism. And so he, he references those in the same context. Where does he say? He says, uh, he says, uh, 
when the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and the devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, the Jews saw the crowds. They were filled with jealousy, talked abusively. And that's when Paul says, we had to speak the word of God to you first since you reject it. Do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life. We now turn to the Gentiles. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. And then Acts 18, every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when the Jews opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clear of my responsibility. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And so it wasn't like, you know, he just had this kind of nebulous heart for the Jews. You don't develop a heart and priority for Jewish salvation in a vacuum. I mean, it's like you develop it in context to your firm belief in the scriptures and the covenants that God has made with their patriarchs and that God is faithful to those and he will not forget it. And he's destined them in the age to come to be head of nations and he's longing for them to be restored now and to walk in that light of the age to come. You know, in light of your covenants and your firm belief in it, therefore, you have a, a, you walk that out like in marriage, in light of your belief in the covenant, you're rehearsing this covenant that you made to that woman, you walk it out and you do it, and then the emotions come afterwards. And so likewise, I don't, I don't have that huge of a heart for Jewish you know, restoring Jewish believers or unbelievers or whatever, like, but I know, like, I'm setting, I'm setting my belief in the covenants, and I know the Lord is going to open a door for me to be able to walk that out, and my heart will burn in context to that. And so, um, point three, the apostolic ministry maintained the burden of Jewish evangelism, which was progressively lost as the church became Hellenized. And so it's the same like the analogy with the father with his sons in an ancient Near Eastern home. The burden, there's a unique burden for the restoration of the elder son in light of his destiny. But like uh, Romans 9, I speak the truth in Christ, I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Why? This is why I have the unceasing anguish. Because I know the covenants, and I've rehearsed them. Theirs is the adoption of sons. Theirs is promised the resurrection. Theirs the divine glory of the, of the age to come. Theirs the covenant, the receiving of the law as a tutor, the temple worship and the promises in the age to come. I mean, it's all destined to them, and yet they've rejected it and turned away, and they'll be thrown into a lake of fire. Therefore, I have unceasing anguish in my heart. And therefore, Romans 11, I make much of my ministry amongst the Gentiles to provoke them to envy and jealousy so that some may be aroused my own people uh, to envy and save some of them. You see what I'm saying? It's not like this kind of Mormon, you got to just pray to the Lord and Him touch you and you get the burning in the bosom kind of deal. It's you develop a heart for the restoration of of the descendants of Abraham 
because of your understanding of the covenants and and the age to come. Moreover, like Paul, we can actually have a heart of love and anguish because anguish comes out of the place of love where we can actually love Jewish unbelievers and we can call them to repentance, not using them for our own theological games to get Jesus to return, to build the temple for the Antichrist to come so we can go to heaven or whatever, whatever, which they're totally offended at anyway. We can actually develop a heart of love and anguish that they would be saved, that they would enter into their destiny. We want to be able to approach a Jewish unbeliever in love and kindness and truth, speaking to them that Jesus is the Christ, calling them to repentance and righteousness to receive their destined inheritance, adoption of sons, etc. Simple point that I bumbled through about 18 different ways. You guys love to grind with me on this. All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the light you show to us in the scriptures that you have made known to us by your Holy Spirit. And so we ask you, strengthen our belief in it. God, strengthen our heart in the scriptures. We just set ourselves, God, to allegiance to you as the God of Israel and the God of the nations. You are the God of the Jews but not only the Jews, the God of all the Gentiles and the nations. And we set ourselves in alignment with that, and we ask you, God, to open doors in our life to provoke uh, an envy amongst uh, Jewish, uh, Jew, uh, Jewish people in our life and around us, God. We know we can't make those doors open, but we want to have the same heart that you have, God. We want to be in line with that like the apostles have. We ask for the same heart and the same mind that the apostles have in the name of Jesus.